You are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bobin Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We are coming to you live from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is June 10th, 2022, and hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. So I think that was my best Ryan impression I could come up with. <laughs> As you can clearly see, uh, it's me, Bhavan, talking. Uh, we don't have Ryan for this week's podcast, but he will be back for the next one, so don't worry about it. Uh, it's just going to be me, but uh, still we have an awesome guest planned for you where we learn all about Redis on Kubernetes. Uh, but before we dive into the topic for the podcast today, let's talk about a few news articles or a few uh, blogs that came across uh, um, my uh, search history, I guess, uh, and discuss w w what they are. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about was the in, uh, uh, Myrantis announced the integration of uh, the Lens IDE for Kubernetes with Docker Desktop. So Lens IDE was built by a startup uh, that Myrantis acquired called Container uh, a year after it bought Docker Enterprise from Dockering in 2019. So I think at this point, Lens IDE is already being used by uh, a, a huge uh, amount of developers in the ecosystem and just integrating that with Docker Desktop and making sure developers uh, can create that sandbox, can create that small cluster on Docker Desktop, uh, use Lens IDE um, uh, along with it uh, is a great step to make sure the developer productivity goes up. So that was one. The second one is around Coinbase finally deciding to join the Kubernetes party. So I think uh, I, I didn't know about this, but a couple of years back, Coinbase published a blog post detailing why Kubernetes is not part of their technical stack. Uh, why they felt that uh, any problems that would come along by adopting Kubernetes would outweigh any near-term benefits. And this was a blog that they published a couple of years back. Now they have a new blog on their website where they have uh, uh, now seen that Kubernetes ecosystem has matured. Uh, it's a more stable code base. Uh, the security concerns that they had uh, do have uh, uh, have have the the concerns have reduced. There are better solutions out there. There are managed services that they can rely on. Kubernetes definitely will help them with running things at scale because it, I think from mid twenty twenty or the the peak of the pandemic, uh, Coinbase has seen a huge increase in the term in terms of the resources that's needed to uh, service the increased number of users that are trading any form of cryptocurrency. So I think. Uh, this is an interesting blog uh, around how they decided to choose Kubernetes as their uh, as a part of their compute platform moving forward. So I think we'll keep an eye out of 
uh, for any future blogs where they talk about how the migration is going or how the migration went, if they were successful at it or not. So we can we can get some lessons learned talk at uh, maybe KubeCon North America or next year at KubeCon Europe. But talking about migration to Kubernetes, uh, I, I came across another article where Airbnb actually migrated to Kubernetes a few years back. Uh, I think three or five years uh, was the time duration when they started adopting Kubernetes. And they moved from manually orchestrating EC2 instances to running their applications on Kubernetes. And this this blog specifically talks about how they have uh, thought about different cluster auto scaling strategies to make sure that their applications always have enough capacity to run and they uh, they describe how they went through different stages uh, for the first stage was running homogeneous clusters with manual scaling second was running uh, multiple cluster types uh, which are independently auto scale and then the third one the third stage was uh, just running heterogeneous clusters and each node group being auto scaled and uh, what were the challenges with each stage and how all of this has led to them building their custom grpc expander uh, to help them with cluster auto scaling so it's a, a good blog around how uh, our big organizations like airbnb are running kubernetes in production and how they are managing not just their capacity but also the cost that's associated with running a kubernetes cluster uh, so uh, we'll have those links in the show notes but with that, let me uh, introduce our guest today. So today, we uh, our podcast is going to be around Redis on Kubernetes. And to help us learn more about the topic, we have Brad Askar, who is a principal product manager uh, at Redis. And he's focused on all things containers and Kubernetes. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So let's get Brad on the pod and uh, introduce him. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you so much, Brad, for joining us on this podcast. We are lo- really looking forward uh, for, to, to talking about Redis on Kubernetes. Why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself, what you do at Redis Labs, and uh, what your focus is? Thanks, Bhavan. So my name is Brad Askar. I'm Principal Product Manager here at Redis. I'm responsible for all things Kubernetes and containers here. Awesome. That's great. Like I, I think we found the right guy. So <laughs> let yeah. me start with... Uh, the the higher level question first, like what is Redis and how is it different from all the different databases out there or the databases that we have been talking about in the, on previous episodes of this podcast? Yeah, so Redis is a few things actually. Redis is an open source database project. Redis stands for Remote Dictionary Server. So the first two letters of each word, as a lot of people don't know where the name came from. Uh, and it started out as a, better, as a better network way of doing Memcached, right? So that, that was kind of the initial. We're way beyond that nowadays. It's a in-memory, sub-millisecond, highly scalable database. Uh, Redis is also a company. So it used to be Redis Labs. Redis is now the name of the company. And uh, it expanded the work, basically, of the open source to make it enterprise, right? So the product from us is Redis Enterprise. All the things that enterprises care about, very high scale, security, uh, easier methods of installation, all of those things, right? So that's really uh, the Redis enterprise product. 
People think about us for caching. That's what I thought about before I came to Redis. That's how I used it and architected it, used it in solutions personally uh, in various jobs that I had. Uh, and that's, that's one thing that we do, uh, but it's so much more than that uh, now. It's a multi-model database. Uh, and the multi-model means that we do things, not only just the uh, hashes, strings, bitmaps, uh, uh, things like hyperlog logs, uh, geospatial indexes, things like that, but also document database like Redis JSON and Redis Graph, Redis Time Series. Uh, and then beyond that, we have modules. So those, those last few were modules. We also expand with modules to do things like Redis Bloom for Bloom filters, if you know what those are. Redis Search, so you can do searching on all these different data types. Redis Gears for doing cluster-wide programmatic access close to the data. So you don't have to pull the data at something else. You can actually do the processing and the logic there in the database and do it all in some millisecond speed. And then things like feature stores for real-time AI and ML. It's really at the end all about speed and you access it all through the same API. So instead of having have a different API for each kind of document, each kind of database type or their data model, you actually can do it all through the same uh, API. And at the end, it's all about speed. Redis is speed freaks. I never realized how much speed freaks they were until they came here. And it's all about the speed. Gotcha. Like, uh, I'm, I'm glad that like we invited you on this podcast and I did some research because just uh looking at like okay what redis is i always thought oh it's in memory database okay let's just move on <laughs> it's yeah. great to like learn more about like what everything that's involved as part of redis and i didn't know redis stood for remote direct dictionary server so uh that's another key takeaway i guess uh but uh talking about redis enterprise right uh can we t- like get a ten thousand foot view of the architecture let's keep kubernetes out for a minute let's just talk about how redis actually works yep so from a high level, and this is easy because Redis actually existed before, Redis Enterprise existed before Kubernetes, right? So uh, at the high level, Redis has clusters, sounds familiar, uh, and what you'd expect from a modern database. Also has availability for and durability, uh, rack zone awareness for, uh, for containing blast radius and voltages, HA, geo redundancy. Uh, and while it's, it's a uh, Kubernetes talk, from an architecture standpoint, we do this in a bunch of different ways. We do it as something that you can install uh, on virtual machines or physical hardware. We do it in Kubernetes, of course. That's why we're talking here. We also host uh, Redis as a hosted service, or we're a hosted service uh, database company as well. So a bunch of different ways. But from an architecture standpoint, it's really all about the cluster, and it will sound very familiar as we talk a little bit more about Kubernetes. The design is very similar because you have similar needs. Okay, gotcha. Uh, hosted service of Redis. Uh, that's something I didn't know about. Okay, perfect. Uh, so let's move on to the obvious question, right? Like why Redis on Kubernetes and how do we get started with Redis How uh, on deploying Redis on Kubernetes? Yep. So Redis on Kubernetes, of course, works anywhere that Kubernetes works. That's one of the advantages of doing it in Kubernetes, right? <laughs> is, is that it works there. So whether you're hosting your own, you're in managed Kubernetes and AKS, GKE, EKS, all of the various hosted platforms, wherever, mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for doing it in Kubernetes and the benefits are several. And there's challenges too, right? So yep. as I described before, Redis predates Kubernetes. So it has its own control plane, has its own data plane. Sounds very familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the same exact reasons and patterns that Kubernetes uses these patterns, right? These are, these are known patterns. Kubernetes didn't invent these patterns. These are yep. patterns that became quite obvious in large enterprise software. Uh, and then the challenge for us is, 
is which pieces of the control plane did you give over to Kubernetes and which pieces you take up for yourself, right? So because we can do this outside of Kubernetes and then do these kinds of things, what is it that makes it more Kubernetes and makes it a better experience inside of Kubernetes? Yep. From a benefit standpoint, there's a lot of benefits to what we do. So uh, with Redis Enterprise, it runs in the same way that Redis Enterprise runs. We have a level three operator and controllers for the solution. So it deploys as a stateful set, uses the operator pattern for maintaining and watching all the things that are going on and pulling all the levers, being able to do all of the uh, normal day-to-day -day functionality that you expect people to do from an administration standpoint. So when I see this, do that, right? So you can build a lot of the smarts into what you do at large scale right into the operator. So the operator can take care of that. And then, of course, the controllers. So we have uh, numerous controllers, one of which watches the cluster itself, make sure that the cluster is configured how you want the cluster to be configured. You tell it to size up, do all the things that you're expecting the cluster to do. And then we also have a, have a uh, controller for, to watch the databases. So when you create the YAML and says create a database with all these parameters, well, it, that's its job to make sure that that gets kicked off to the API and it does all of the pieces and then to make sure it stays within the configuration that it's supposed to stay in. Uh, and it allows you to do all the normal Kubernetes things in the way you expect to do Kubernetes things. YAML files that describe objects, all of these uh, objects that I talked about are all CRDs in the mm -hmm. system, right? So all of, we take advantage of all the stuff that Kubernetes does uh, for, the very, for the very reason that they were created, be able to make it as Kubernetes-like as you, as you can within that environment. And ultimately for people to be able to do other things like namespacing it. So one of the advantages that you can have with Redis inside of Kubernetes is a single Kubernetes cluster can have a bunch of Redis clusters within it, which means if you've got different departments or if you've got, got pre-production and production in the same clusters, whatever your combination of what you do and how you namespace to do that, you can install us to do that. So you can install us in a single namespace. You can install a cluster to watch to be for over the entire cluster a couple of namespaces, whatever actually works for you and the way you've configured, we're configured to be able to work in that way. Uh, so it makes it a really easy way to do it. And then everybody can have their separation of concerns and ultimately do things like GitOps patterns where you're just checking, checking stuff in and out, right? And yep. so it makes it really easy to maintain in that way. Gotcha. So does the Redis operator, uh, I should have done my research, but is it open source? Anybody can get started uh, with it uh, just by downloading it or running yeah, Redis it? Operator, Redis operator is open source. In fact, oh, almost everything that we do is open source. Uh, so the, the Redis open source project, of course, that we build upon, and then all these pieces and modules and everything else are open source. So there's, okay. very, there's very little that's not open source from us. And then uh, when, when I deploy the operator, right, uh, as part of the CRD uh, deployment and definition, uh, yep. do we cover uh, just Redis Enterprise or Redis Graph, Redis Time Seas, everything that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, right? Everything, everything that I managed, managed uh, to talk about at the very beginning, uh, including right now I'm in private preview on a specific feature, which is Redis on Flash, where we can actually extend the database so that, you know, Having a really, really large database that's only in memory can get can get cost prohibitive. For some people, that doesn't matter. They need it all there because they need that speed. But for some use cases, you need speed, but it doesn't always have to be that speed. And then what we do there is put the indexes and some of the stuff in memory, and then the rest can be on flash, flash storage. And so on durable storage underneath. Uh, and so that, that expands the use case, uh, even beyond what I was talking about, so that you can have really large data sets 
that they get in, into, you know, lots and lots of terabytes and terabytes of data, right? And so uh, from that standpoint, it's also useful even for really large data sets because RAM is expensive. Yep. Oh, oh, it sure is. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> talking about these huge databases, right? Terabytes and terabytes of data. Um, can we talk about a few customer use cases? And uh, like, uh, if you can share some names, that would be great. If not, uh, we can keep it anonymous and just talk about use cases. Yeah. So customer use cases, right? So there's so many solutions out there uh, for customers. Uh, on our website, it's really easy to see because it's really by your use case. So you can drill into the use case or the industry. And then based on what it is, we've got the, the references. We're really heavily into financial services, retail, healthcare, gaming, uh, pretty much everybody that needs to do things uh, at high speed. And things like retail <clears throat> for things like the uh, feature store for AI and ML for fraud detection. So that instantly when you swipe that card, they can instantly make the decision whether this is fraudulent activity or not, right? You need to be able to do that really fast. You got to do that real time. You got to have something that acts on that in sub millisecond kinds of time, right? You can't take seconds and seconds that, that messes up transactions. Uh, gaming uh, for things like leaderboards, heavily, heavily used in the gaming uh, gaming sector, financial services, everybody that's doing anything at really high speed, trading, all, all the financials. I definitely can't give you those names there because yeah. they don't want to tell you who those are, right? Uh, so we've got some public, uh, public references out there, but pretty much every sector that you're in we're, we're there. We've been, we've been, and we've been there for a long time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Gotcha. No, and fraud detection use case does make sense, right? You have to get that decision. I don't want to, like, you don't want a scenario where a customer is standing at a point, a point of service station, puts that fraudulent card in, and then gets that transaction approved because they never got uh, a feedback back from their system. So, uh, yeah. yeah, we need that to be blazing fast and make sure everything works. Yeah, AI and ML, you got kind of two halves. You have the first half where you train stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And that happens offline, that's slower, bigger data sets, you're crunching everything else. But once you've actually distilled that down, those, those models and that information, that's the feature, that's the store that you need. And you need that store to be really, really fast. And we found some great, great use cases there uh, and some published use cases. Uh, and in fact, we just had a blog on our, on our uh, blog post specifically about that use case, talking about the work that was done there and the speed that we can get. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll uh, make sure I find that and put it in our show notes as well. Uh, no. Okay. So I, I wanted to learn more about uh, how the architecture has changed for running Redis on Kubernetes. Um, yeah. Like what Kubernetes objects does, do we consume? You said that you deploy it as a stateful set, but if you can get into any more details, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. So when we get when we get down there, uh, there there's not a ton of change from regular Redis other than Redis itself had a concept of nodes, just like Kubernetes had nodes. Uh, so in a non-Kubernetes sense, you had a bunch of virtual machines, and then you put them, and then you created node. Each one of those was a node because you had the Redis process running on it. For us, that actually just turns into a Kubernetes pod. And this is where you can have a lot of them rather than them consuming the entire virtual or physical machine. You basically containerized it, right? So the same idea. So that's the only place where we kind of have a collision on naming. Other than that, 
all of the normal Kubernetes stuff that you'd expect from a, from a stateful set running inside running inside of a pod with the controllers and the CRDs and all the things that go there. Uh, Installation is pretty easy. Installation for us is a single bundle file. Mm-hmm. You tell it to go. Or if you're running someplace that imp- grabs things, uh, say you're running an OpenShift and, you, and you're using their OLM or something like that and their catalog, you just install it and it grabs the, it grabs the uh, operator, does a complete install for all the objects that are in there. Uh, and from there, most everything that you can do you can do in the Kubernetes way by modifying those objects. So when you have a database, you can change settings on the database and do things there. Of course, the things that you can change are some things that you can only change. You can only happen at create time, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, because they make major decisions about what's included, like which modules are included at create time, right? But everything else uh, that you could do from the API, you can do it in the Kubernetes way, modify that, that Kubernetes object, and off you go. Okay, perfect. So how do we handle upgrades? Is it just like, okay, we, we uh, change the, the custom resource, uh, provide the new version, and the uh, Redis operator does a non-disruptive upgrade for me? Is that it? Exactly. That's that's one of the beauties, right, is that the, the, the upgrade path is really easy. No version of the operator comes out. You make a modification to uh, to the uh, rec the rec the Redis Enterprise cluster to the new version of the mm-hmm. contain underlying containers that make up the solution. You do that, and then it takes care of sequencing all of that and making sure that you don't have any data loss and doing them one at a time upgrade as it goes through the upgrade. So makes it super easy to do the upgrade uh, and and to manage that. And it has all the logic in there for doing the combinations of how many you can do that do at one time, right? If you got a really large cluster or you've got a lot of clusters to do. Right, it, it makes it super easy to do there. The other thing I'll say is, is with all of that, while you got all these pieces that represent all these objects for Redis inside of Kubernetes, if something happened to the operator, mm-hmm. if something happened to the controllers, Redis still keeps running. Now you might not be able to, to use YAML files to change its behavior, but Redis itself is still running, its API is still running, all the tooling that normally talks to Redis is all still there. So. It also makes it easier because during the process of changing what controls Redis, Redis itself is unaffected. You're just changing a control plane outside of its control plane, which is one of the advantages of us having our own control plane. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Uh, as you said, like if control plane goes down, your data plane shouldn't be affected. Your applications uh, shouldn't go down. So uh, yeah, uh, I, I actually never thought about what happens to custom resources when an operator goes down? But I think that's a question that I'll add to my list uh, for people like that that are guests on the pod. So anybody listening in and want to come on, uh, do make sure be ready for that question. Uh, yeah, well, that's one thing about custom resources. Custom resources, and by definition, when you have a custom resource, you have multiple versions. As you're doing versioning, it's one file that has all those versions. If somebody mm-hmm. does something wrong, something gets corrupted or whatever, and you do that, and then you install one that potentially causes a problem, depending on what you're doing, could cause you problems, right? And so having that, that uh, control plane outside of that control plane allows you to, su- to suffer errors at that level without impacting the operation of the database itself. Gotcha. Okay. And how do we fix that? Like just out of curiosity, like if, if my operator goes down, my uh, database is still running, how do, re- how do I reconcile everything so it looks good again? Uh, so while, while it's down, while, while, the, while what's, the Kubernetes pieces are down, Database is still running, running ahead, doing whatever, receiving and sending, you know, sending whatever mm-hmm. data. Once it actually you, you fix whatever that problem is, 
the job of the controller, of course, is just like the controller in Kubernetes, that, that whose job is to make sure that what's in the YAML file is the ultimate configuration of what's under the covers. Exact same thing for us. So same same behavior for us. That is, if this says there's three copies and what's running is two, then when it comes back up, it says, oh, there should be three copies, right? Okay. And forces it back. Controllers are actually pretty stupid. They just say, make 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 the real world look like the YAML file. That's mm -hmm. the job of Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so we spoke about upgrade processes. How do I scale it up? Right. I might have started with a really small instance, but now I need more capacity. How do I scale up or scale out my Redis uh, cluster? Yep. So you've got two things that uh, that you do. Number one, it's the cluster itself, right? So you add more raw capacity by expanding the size of the cluster. Now, maybe that you expand the size of your Kubernetes cluster first. And then you expand the size of the, of the Redis cluster underneath it. Say you need a, a drastic amount more of whatever. Could be that your Kubernetes cluster has enough room for whatever we're asking for, right? Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it depends on how big you're scaling. So increase the cluster. That allows you to run more shards. And then the other that's the other piece for us. It's the shards. So when you have a database, you have a number of shards. When you have a database of a certain size, you're not going to want all in one place. You're going to want to be able to actually shard that thing out. And when you do that sharding, that's how you increase not only capacity, because now you're using more memory on more boxes. That's also how you increase throughput and performance of this system as well. So as you scale out, it starts running faster and faster. So more, more throughput uh, is available, right? Up to massive scales, right, of millions of operations per second. And that, that requires you to scale out in the number of shards, right? Because you got to distribute that work across a larger number of shards for what's going on with the database. Okay, gotcha. So uh, and, is there, are there like Grafana dashboards or some sort of monitoring tools that you have built into the operator or just plugins built into monitoring systems that can help me monitor my Redis instance and, and like identify that the need to perform a scale-up operation? Yeah, in fact... Uh, in the design of, of Redis itself, uh, it was already made itself available for it to be scraped by Prometheus. And of course, when we did the Kubernetes pieces of it, we passed that on through to there. And then all the other things about what's going on at the Kubernetes level for all the other pieces that run inside of Kubernetes. So pretty easy, very easy to install that and grab, grab a dashboard. Boom, we've got some out-of-the-box dashboards that will give you all of that information. Okay, perfect. Uh Next thing, I think we covered upgrades, we covered scaling. Mm -hmm. uh, how do I build or architect for resiliency or high availability? Or how do I protect against some node failures? Or how do I take backups? Like, just cover everything there. <laughs> yeah. So and this, this is where, where it really gets interesting because we're really designed for this. And this is the difference between the project and the enterprise version, right? The enterprise version has a bunch of things that are added on to handle things at large scale, to be able to handle things like failover and all of that stuff, right? It's really designed around those structures. So out of the box, HA, pretty simple. You, you tell it that you want the database to be HA and it'll create two shards, a leader and a follower, right? That normal structure, how many followers you want to have, depending on the resilience that you want. For HA, we also totally understand uh, everything that's necessary to understand about uh, affinity and anti-affinity and what's going on. So we give you the ability to do rack zone awareness. So if you're running in public cloud, they have zones, availability zones. When you do something, we automatically place the pieces far apart, from, as far apart from each other as possible, right? To make sure that when you have an incident and you lose an availability zone, you have a blast rate, 
you, you control it, contain that blast radius. Inside of it as well, because you might be running this thing on your own on-premises for whatever, we have rack and zone awareness. You tell us what your topology is and what the rules are for your topology. And then when you do something and have multiple copies, right, so that for HA, then we make sure that the parts are in your blast radiuses, wherever you design your structure for uh, when you're doing that. Beyond that, which is uh, all about, you know, kind of in a data center kind of things, you also then start getting into geographical disaster, right? And then how you spread yourself geographically. And for us, that's the ability to do active-active with conflict-free database technology. And that basically allows you to go higher latency distances, right? Because Mm -hmm. I'm going to go geography um, uh, separated, maybe different continents, then, of course, the you you have to do something in a different way because the latencies there are not so millisecond latencies. You're not in the same data center, right? Uh, so you have the ability to do that, and you have the ability to do it as as uh, primary, secondary, or active, active, so that you could actually be working at the database closest to where you are and closest to where your customers are. And that's one of the things that people really like about us as well is being able to do that and using the same data, uh, the same data, but but separated, right? So that you can do that and actually being able to be active on both sides. And then you get eventually get the uh, conflict-free part is where we figure out which ones were done when, what were the actual impacts to what changed so that you, and and the rules for, that you follow if there is some sort of conflict, right? So that at the end of the day, you're, you don't have any conflicts and changes that were done distributed. And okay. so that's the, that's the way that a lot of people are using us for their highest availability use cases and for their lowest latency use case. So they may go geographic, they may go city city, uh, city edge, right? Yep. They could actually go all the way down to uh, use cases like uh, folks in telecom where the, where they literally want one of these things in every 5G tower, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's those kind of configurations as well. So whatever your architecture needs to be, whatever your level of, uh, of uh, HA, geo redundancy, redundancy, uh, I mean, some people use RHA even just for uh, for uh, close, like two two close data centers in a, in a metro area for doing that. Whatever it is that you want to do there. Okay. No, the the longer distance uh, active active architecture is something yes. that yeah. Okay, that's interesting to me. I definitely need to go and learn more about it because. Yeah. Yeah, usually when you hear active active, it's mostly a, oh you need to meet like a um, industry standard might be like a ten millisecond latency requirement uh, to make sure all your data actually gets copied over. So if you're able yeah. to do this across geographies, that okay, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and and it, and it's not an easy problem to solve. It's one of the problem you know that's one of the big things that that we worked on, and and it really you know came from customers and their use cases, and and the fact that the, this is what you really need to be able to run large distributed global systems, right? And got a lot of very large banks, a lot of very large trading company, like all sorts of stuff runs mm-hmm. on that. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Okay, so I, I guess uh, if we can 
uh, one a couple of more questions around this because this just this is just so interesting uh like are these geographically distributed uh instances running on different openshift clusters or different kubernetes clusters for that matter and uh can i use the same operator and and custom resources to deploy this or how do i architect this how do i run this on kubernetes yeah so from an active active standpoint the other side is another redis cluster mm-hmm. whether or not runs in whether or not runs in Kubernetes, it doesn't matter for us to make make that happen. But it can, of course, be different different flavors of Kubernetes. Maybe you're doing something at the edge where you tend to run in one cloud, but this other cloud doesn't have a geography that you need. But this other cloud vendor does have that geography. You could have it in there. You could even have it in their managed version of Kubernetes, and you're running in a managed version of Kubernetes. You're running some of it on prem. Whatever your scenario is, from a Redis standpoint. We don't care. We run in all the Kubernetes, of course, and in some Kubernetes that have additional functionality or additional uh, opinionated versions like OpenShift that has an opinionated version of what they do. We run there as well and take take advantage of some of the functionality, like they use routes instead of ingresses in a lot of ways. We do that sort of thing as well. But from a geo-redundancy standpoint, it can be any cluster anywhere in any flavor of Kubernetes and go. There's there's some restrictions, of course. You got to be close close on the versions of Redis itself, yep. right? Depending on its capabilities, but that's really the only thing that, that limits you is just making sure you got versions of, of Redis that are close enough to each other, right? That there's not a major version or something different between databases. Okay, so like if I uh, if I got that point correctly, right? I can be running in in US and I can have Redis on Kubernetes, but if I want to expand into EMEA, I don't want to spin it up on Kubernetes. I can use your managed service or I can use one of those hosted services or run it on VMs and still have those two Redis clusters talk to each other? Exactly. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Yeah, super powerful from that standpoint because you run into all sorts of interesting things when you start when you start having to go to different geographies, different countries. You've got some, some uh, country-specific uh, requirements on data residency and that kind of stuff. And not every combination is available in all those places, right? And so being flexible like that allows you to really custom tailor your solution. And it could be that you do almost everything, all of them almost exactly the same, and then there's one-off. We can handle the one-off as well. Okay, gotcha. So uh, I think my next question is around, like, how do people learn more about uh, Redis on Kubernetes? How do they get started? I know Operator is like a great place to do that, but any any pointers that you can give us, uh, give our listeners? Yeah, if you go to redis.com slash solutions, it's a great way to start because when you go to solutions, you start seeing the use cases, industry stuff, probably closer matches to what you're looking for. And we're kind of, you know, in each one of those areas, we have a different different way. Of course, you can just follow the, the solution out of Kubernetes and go specifically to our Kubernetes documentation. It tells you the architecture, how it is and isn't the same as Redis otherwise, uh, the node-to-node pod kind of thing, mm-hmm. fully explained in the architecture there allows you to do that. So a lot of good stuff. We've got a YouTube channel, of course. It's got a bunch of these use cases that you can go uh, and see what we do there. We do not on, not only uh, webinar recordings and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but specific technology recordings. Uh, and in some cases, you know, specific trainings that we do, that we actually put that training out there. So some of the same training I would consume, like when I came on, uh, I consumed a lot of training because this is a lot of stuff uh, was uh, available there as well. Gotcha. And uh, I, I, I like that uh, uh, these trainings are available publicly because similar to you, how you said, right, when you uh, joined Redis, uh, you wa- watch those uh, just on, on my side, right? When I joined Portworx, 
uh, to get ready for the interview process, I did look at all of their training videos or lightboard videos that Ryan had uh, on our, on the Portbox YouTube channel and got up to speed on what the product does. And then I was able to kill it in the interview itself. So exactly, <laughs> all yeah. of those videos are super helpful. Yeah, it was, and it was the same thing here at Redis, right? So Redis is so wide, so deep. It's got a dozen years behind it, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot of capabilities. And, it's, and for us, it's, e- it's easily weeks and weeks worth of training to bring on product managers and solution architects, right, to, to really understand what's going on. Uh, and we just touched a little bit on the Kubernetes pieces of it, right? Mm-hmm. The product itself has so many other capabilities. Um, but that's what makes Redis great, right, is, is there's so much there, there's such level of depth. Uh, and the other, I think I'll say from a company standpoint, we're hiring like crazy. We're remote friendly. We got people all over the globe. If you go out there and look at our careers right now, I think there's like 20 different locations that are right now, uh, Mm -hmm. there in our career section. So we're very, uh, very distributed company. Okay. Gotcha. So I think that that's my entire list that I had for you. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you wanted to talk about Redis on Kubernetes? No, I, I think we hit uh, all of the major points. I think that uh, we've just scratched the surface, but I think that's a good overall summary of mm-hmm. where we are and what we're doing in Kubernetes. We're doing more exciting stuff in, in Kubernetes. Uh, I, like I said, that Redis on Flash is, is a, a new place that uh, we're working on. And uh, we're always looking to expand the capabilities and looking to expand what we do in Kubernetes as a differentiator to mm-hmm. uh, even what we do with Redis everywhere else. Okay, perfect. Uh, I think we'll have to get you back when whenever you uh, GA Redis on Flash uh, to talk more sure. about it. Yeah, perfect. Uh, and I'm looking forward to meeting you at KubeCon North America. I'm assuming, given your role, you will be there. You will be the point I person. Will be <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, with that, I think this this was uh, this was an awesome episode around to just get started. As you said, right? We just scratched the surface, but it still gave us a good overview of how Redis works, what are the different components, how it works on Kubernetes, how it gets deployed, how do you scale and, and upgrade and build build or architect for high availability. So thank you so much for your time, Brad, today. I'm looking forward to many future conversations. Whenever I need to ask or talk about Redis, I know who to reach out to. I appreciate that, Bob. It was very nice having a conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Awesome. I think that was a great episode uh, that we had, uh, I think we we covered a lot of ground in those thirty minutes, and Brad helped me answer so many different questions I had around Redis. Uh, starting from like, if we just uh, jump to the takeaway section, the the first thing I learned is Redis as a company does so much more than just having that uh, Redis Enterprise server or a simple Redis cluster. There are things like Redis Graph, Redis Time Series, Redis JSON that build up that the the multimodal database that they have and then in, in addition to modes they they can combine things like redis bloom for bloom filters and redis search even though i don't know what redis bloom means that's something that if any of our listeners are, are using it they know that's something that's available 
I will definitely go and check it out. Uh, what these additional modules are as well. Uh, the second key takeaway that I had was uh, uh, just operator, right? Like everybody, uh, all all the all the different databases that we have discussed on this podcast have an operator that go along with it that make the installation, deployment, ongoing management really easy. And I was glad that Brad was able to talk about how easy it is to upgrade how easy it is to scale uh, your redis cluster using things like cluster like expanding and adding more uh, nodes to your cluster or, or just doing basic sharding so both of those are important uh, the third key takeaway was around that geographically distributed active active uh, redis deployment where you can uh, run redis on kubernetes or you can even have redis on kubernetes on one side and maybe a managed redis service on the other and you can still have that connection between the two clusters so that is something that was new for me i will definitely go and learn more about it i'm pretty sure like once i do i'll also put a link in the show notes uh, but with that i think uh, we can uh, end this episode thank you so much for listening to our episodes whenever they come out we really love all the engagement uh, uh that that we have we always see our numbers increasing thank you so much for listening uh I, I think if i can ask you a couple of things please feel free to like leave a comments like share subscribe this podcast give up fi- give us five star ratings on the podcast app of your choice and if you can um over the weekend maybe next week a week at work share this podcast with two more people from your team uh help us expand the audience as well with that this brings us to the end of this episode uh this time it's just Pavin and thank you for joining another episode of the Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly 1 in 4 consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to 3 million dollars in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.